listeners, welcome back to Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries Unity in Christ program. If this is your first time listening, my name is Veronica Kim and I am the host of this program. What do all of you believe is your purpose in life? If you ask a student, for what purpose do you study hard? What do you think will be the most popular answer? I think the most popular answer would be to study hard to get into a good college. Next, if you ask them, why do you want to get into a good college? What would their answers be? It's probably going to be so that I can get a stable job. If you ask the same person, why is it important for you to have a stable job? What would their answer be? I would think that they will want to have a stable job so that they can meet their other half, get married, buy a home, have a child, and live a happy life together. I think that this is what most of us want in our lives, to live a happy and stable life. It is not to become filthy rich and live an arrogant life. Most of us just hope to live a life where we can buy all the things that we need without worry and spend without worrying about tomorrow. I think that people try and work hard at where they are now to live a life without worry and concerns. What do all of you think about this? Do all of you live searching for happiness in your lives? We will continue this discussion after the first song. No record deal, no dream fulfilled, no three-minute video. i 
The dictionary defines happiness as the state of being happy, feeling pleasure, contentment, or satisfaction, having fulfillment in life, being content with your life, leading to pleasure. In other words, it's a life without worry or concerns. To reach this happiness, the ill will hope for their health, the hungry will hope to fill their stomachs, the unemployed will hope for a job in the future. The blind will hope for their sight, and the deaf will hope to hear again. And for all these people to receive what they hope for would mean their happiness. What would be the happiest news to all of you right now? What will fulfill your life and bring you good news? If all that you hope for comes true, will you really be happy in life? As I mentioned before, I think that we all work hard and go through difficult times to reach that happiness in our lives. While in jail, John the Baptist sent his disciples to meet Jesus and ask him a question because for a short period of time, he had doubts about Jesus being the Messiah. John the Baptist told his disciples to ask, Are you the Messiah we've been expecting? Or should we keep looking for someone else? Jesus answers, John the Baptist in Luke chapter 7, verse 22. Go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them. Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. All this truly happened. Jesus came and opened the eyes of the blind to see made the lame to walk, he cured the lepers of their disease, made the deaf hear, and even brought the dead back to life. Jesus was able to fix their problems and worries. He was able to make them happy. However, what Jesus did for them did not lead to their ultimate happiness. It was all temporary. Just because your eyes are open, your ears are able to hear, or because they are cured of their disease, it does not lead to happiness forever. One day, they will be faced with another problem, and they will feel that they are no longer happy because the worries and concerns in their lives. Then, why did Jesus decide to show us all these miracles? He did this to show all of us a sample of what life would be like in heaven. 
Jesus shows us that He's able to fix all the problems and worries in our lives while living in this world. But He will not fix all our problems in this world, only in heaven. Oh, happy day that fixed my choice On Thee, my Savior and my God Well, may this growing heart rejoice and tell its raptures all abroad. Happy day, happy day, when Jesus washed my sins away. He taught me how to watch and pray, and live rejoicing every day. Happy day, happy day, when Jesus washed my sins away. Oh, happy bond that seals my vows to Him who merits all my love. Let cheerful anthems fill this house while to that sacred shrine I move. Happy day, happy day, when Jesus washed my sins away. He taught me how to watch and pray, and live rejoicing every day. Happy day, happy day, when Jesus washed my sins away. When Jesus washed my sins away, my sins away. Coming up next is sermon by Pastor David Platt of Radical. Today's topic is the mystery of mercy, part two based on Ruth. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor David. Which leads to verse 22. Naomi returned, and Ruth, doesn't just say Ruth, generally, Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, returned from the country of Moab. And here the writer is highlighting the tension that will mark the rest of this book as a Moabite woman finds herself in the middle of a strange place according to God's sovereign providence. So pause for a second here and just think at the end of chapter 1 about Naomi and Ruth's life and think about how their stories touch on stories all across this room. Aren't there times, are there times in your life when you are tempted to think that God is far from you? When you and I, maybe maybe we're surrounded by famine in the sense of longing for something that we don't have. When everything seems foreign. Maybe you find yourself in a place physically or relationally or emotionally or spiritually. And you're not quite sure how you got there, but all you know is you didn't want to be there. Maybe when death strikes and the pain just doesn't seem to go away. Maybe it was a short time ago. Maybe it was a long time ago. Maybe it was expected. Maybe it was totally unexpected. 
When despair sinks in, you're really not sure if you want to go on in your current circumstances. You wonder if there is a way out. Maybe it's amidst barrenness. Maybe it's amidst loneliness. Maybe it's in grief when you hurt and you cry and you wrestle or in shame when the things you struggle with you may not be proud of or when you struggle with things that other people don't understand or maybe even look down upon. In all these things, my aim is not to be depressing but to be real. We begin to ask the question, is God really near in all of this? This is what I love about the way Ruth chapter 1 ends. Look at the close of verse 22. It says, They came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. And the chapter ends with a note of hope in a harvest that God has given. And Naomi has no idea what lies ahead in those harvest fields. She has come back saying, I'm empty. I've got nothing. But she has no idea that standing right beside her in the person of Ruth is a picture of the fullness of God. She has no idea that God is about to weave together the story of all stories to show his blessing in her bitterness. So don't miss this. Brother or sister in Christ, don't miss this. In those moments when God may seem farthest from you, the reality is God may be setting the stage for the greatest display of his faithfulness to you. In your suffering, God may actually be plotting for your satisfaction. You know, I mentioned... I preached through this book five years ago and at that time, Heather and I were in the process of adopting what we thought would be a child from Nepal. Most of you know our story. For the sake of friends who are visiting with us today, just a quick recap. Heather and I struggled through infertility for about five years, a process through which God led us to adopt our first son, Caleb, from Kazakhstan, only to come home two weeks later, find out that Heather was pregnant. And that led to the birth of our second son, Joshua, nine months later. But even with this awareness that apparently we could have children biologically, we also knew we wanted to adopt again. So we began this adoption process from Nepal. And for two years we prayed night and day for a child in Nepal. But after those two years, next stage was to get matched with a child and abruptly Nepal shut down for adoption, which left us wondering why God had led us down what seemed like a dead-end road. Again, perplexing providence. But this providence redirected us to start an adoption process from China, where over a year after that, we had the privilege of adopting our little girl. And as soon as we heard her story, in light of our story, we knew exactly what we would name her. And it all came back to this story. We knew that we were gonna name our daughter, Mara Ruth. Mara, not because we figured she'd be a bitter little baby, and thankfully she's not. But because from the first moments of her life, it seemed to have tragedy written all over it. Abandoned in a brown paper box and left on the streets outside a special needs orphanage. Even for Heather and me, after those years of infertility, at one point seeming to have barrenness written all over us. But just as Naomi had no idea 
how God was going to use Ruth to turn her story of sorrowful tragedy into surprising triumph. Our daughter, my wife, and I had no idea how God was weaving together our stories according to his sovereign design. For God used all of this to take this abandoned girl and turn it into an adopted daughter. And at the same time, taking what was once a barren woman and making her into a blessed mother. Now, I want to be careful here. I realize that not every story of infertility turns out this way, for that matter. Not every story of sorrow leads to satisfaction in this kind of way on earth. But I do know this, brother and sister in Christ. I do know this. Our Father in heaven always knows what he's doing on earth. Always. And we can trust him. So... Stage set then for Ruth chapter 2. Naomi and Ruth come into Bethlehem with two basic needs. They need food and they need family. So we read verse 1. Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Enter Boaz. Two key facts about him. One, he's from the clan of the family of Elimelech, Naomi's husband who had died. And second, he's a worthy man, which is likely a reference to both his character and his wealth. So that's his introduction. Now, the action. Verse 2, Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. You see, God had set up a way to care for the poor and provide for them at harvest time. God instructed landowners and harvesters to leave grain in the corners of their fields and along the way here and there to provide for those who had no land, had no food. It wasn't much they could have, but it was better than nothing. So with her mother-in-law's permission, Ruth sets out to find and collect a bit of grain at the mercy of a landowner somewhere who might allow a Moabite woman to work in his field. And this is where it gets good. Verse 3. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. Don't you love that language? And she happened. Like, by coincidence. I mean, the language here is intentionally dramatic. By coincidence, she happened to come into the field of Boaz. And by the way, if you've forgotten, Boaz is from the clan of Elimelech. And then, verse 4, and behold, at that moment, Boaz came from Bethlehem. So she's in the field, just happened to be in the field, and he just happens to come up at that time. This is like, husbands, have you ever uh, been uh, with your wife, maybe watching uh, some romantic sappy movie or something like that and all of a sudden well, well not, all these details in the movie just start coming together and this happens this happens for a chance meeting and that leads to life heavily, happily ever after and as these things are happening in the movie you're just sitting there thinking this is absurd life doesn't work this way never happens this way and just about the time you turn over to say something so I'll turn over to say something like let's turn this off this is ridiculous I'll look over and, and just see my wife and there are team, tears just streaming from her eyes and I'm thinking, you're buying this. Look at this. This is real. This is not real. It doesn't work this way. So I just go back and just in frustrated silence watch the rest of the movie. So that's kind of what I feel here. But, but I know. Here's the beauty of it. With, with the God of the universe, 
The drama is always planned. Nothing happens by accident. That's what I meant. The details, the sovereignty over the details. Of the, everything's going, nothing's happening by accident here. Everything by appointment. Isn't it good to know that behind the details of your life, there is a sovereign God who's working for the good of his people and the glory of his name. So, so Boaz happened to come up from Bethlehem and he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. They answered, the Lord bless you. So we had blessings happening everywhere. And verse five, Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? Translation, check her out. And then all the people in the village, who's, who's that? Who's that? Verse six, the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she's continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. In other words, this is a woman from Moab who has no husband, has no one to care for her, provide for her. Now that sets the stage for the first mark of a redeemer. So that's a term that we're actually going to be introduced to down in verse 20. But let me go ahead and start using it here, and then I'll give a little more background when we get there. So if you're taking notes, first mark of a redeemer in the book of Ruth is that the redeemer seeks the needy as his family. The redeemer seeks the needy as his family. Seeks out the needy as his family. So what happens here is Boaz notices Ruth and then walks past all the other workers in the field and comes and makes a beeline directly to Ruth. In verse 8, Boaz said to her, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. So that's the closest thing we have in the Old Testament to a pickup line. Maybe not the most romantic, but actually pretty incredible when you think about it. He dresses her with this term of endearment, my daughter. He tells her, you stay here. Which leads to the second mark of Redeemer. So the Redeemer seeks the needy as his family. And then second, the Redeemer saves the needy from harm. The Redeemer saves the needy from harm. Verse 9, let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? When you're thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Apparently it was not uncommon for someone in Ruth's position working in the fields, particularly as a foreigner, to be mistreated. So Boaz says, you're, you're going to be safe in my field. And look how Ruth responds. Verse 10, she fell on her face, bowing to the ground. Just picture this. She said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? She's overwhelmed. Which sets up a response from Boaz that is majestic, poetic in the original language. Verse 11, Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me and how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel. It's a great phrase here, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Isn't that great imagery? The Lord, the God of Israel. This is why you're experiencing blessing, because you've taken refuge under the wings of the Lord, the God of Israel. Ruth's response is beautiful. She said, I found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me. You have spoken kindly to your servant, though I'm not one of your servants. Basically, Ruth's saying, I'm the lowest on the rung of the social ladder, and you have comforted my heart. You've spoken to my soul. And Boaz is left speechless until, verse 14, at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain 
And she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. So that's the first thing we, closest thing we have in the Old Testament to a first date. A nice romantic meal over roasted grain. Here's some bread, dip it in the wine. Or more than just bread and wine and a meal, similarly are shocking. This is Boaz serving Ruth at his table. Boaz has gone to a Moabite woman, the Lord of the harvest, and said, come eat at my table. Third characteristic of a redeemer. The redeemer serves the needy at his table. It's just shocking. At the beginning of this chapter, Ruth has no food. Now she's enjoying a meal with the Lord of the harvest, a Moabite woman. And it only gets better. Verse 15, when she rose to glean after the meal, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. But, and also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean. And do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. Give you a little background there. Get perspective. An ephah of barley is about half to two-thirds of a bushel. I'll give you a little more background. That's 30 to 50 pounds of barley. Just put that in perspective. Average ration for a male worker in that day was one to two pounds a day. She just gathered 30 to 50 pounds. That's at least half a month's wages in a day. And here's how we know Ruth works out. Verse 18, she took it up and went into the city. She's buff. Coming back with 30 to 50 pounds of grain and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over for being satisfied. I love that. Now she comes back with all this grain, all this bread, and Naomi is giddy to say the least. Listen to verse 19. Her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. You notice how she repeated herself there? It's intentional. The narrator is showing almost like words tumbling out of her mouth. She can't get her thoughts straight. Where were you? Where were you? This is one happy mother-in-law. And the question is, what man did you meet? Now, here's the beauty. We know who she met. And we know the significance of who she met and whose field she's been working in. But Ruth doesn't know the significance, for all we know. And, and Naomi obviously doesn't know. And in Ruth's response, notice how the narrator leaves the name of the man in whose field she's worked until the very last word. And so it's almost like, as the audience, we're just looking at Naomi's face and we cannot wait to see the look on it when she hears this name. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she worked and said, the man's name with whom I worked today is Boaz. And Naomi goes nuts. Verse 20, she said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness is not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man, this man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. So there it is, you might circle it, key word, redeemers. Background here, one of redeemers. God had set up in his law back in Leviticus a way for a kinsman of the same clan to provide for family who found themselves destitute or in desperate circumstances. And one of the ways they could provide for someone in their family or their clan was to redeem their property, basically to purchase or to buy back whatever belonged to, say, a husband who had died. And to bring that property, whatever it was, back into the family along with providing for the members of that family. 
It would literally bring them into his family. Now basically, in order to redeem, to purchase, to lay claim to something and to care for someone, three factors had to be present. Real quick, one had to have the right to redeem. So there was a family line here. There was a chain. And there was next of kin, basically, and the next of kin. So you had to be in the family line. You had to be next. You had to have the right to redeem. Second, you had to have the resources to redeem in order to purchase, buy back property, in order to care for someone's family. You had to have the resources to be able to do that. So you had to have the right to redeem, the resources to redeem, and you had to have the, the resolve to redeem. Third, and so you had to have the want to. And you could have the right and the resources, but if you didn't want to, then it wasn't going to happen. If you had the resolve, you didn't have the right and the resources, then it wasn't going to happen. So you had to have all three of those things in order to redeem. So in verse 21, Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. So Naomi, the quintessential mother-in-law, starts plotting. Verse 22, she said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It's good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest. And she lived with her mother-in-law. Huh. So at the beginning of this chapter, you got Ruth and Naomi with no food, no family. By the end of this chapter, you have Ruth and Naomi with abundant food and the hope of family. Oh, I wish we could keep going just like this all throughout the, rest of the next two chapters because it's just the same, but we don't have time. So chapter three, uh, Ruth continues to work in Boaz's field, but Boaz is not working very fast in this thing, which leads to a somewhat shady scene on the threshing floor in chapter three, which is probably just as good we're not there tonight. And so then we find out on that threshing floor that there's another kinsman who's closer in line in Naomi's family that has the right to redeem before Boaz does. So that leads us to chapter four, where Boaz goes to this other guy who has the right to redeem Naomi and Ruth. That man eventually, though he has the right and the resources, lacks the resolve to do so, which then sets the stage in chapter four for Boaz to do this work of redemption. That leads to the fourth mark of a redeemer. Fourth mark of a redeemer, the redeemer showers the needy with his grace. So the redeemer seeks the needy, his own family goes after, saves the needy from harm, the Redeemer serves the needy at his table. And then the picture we have in the book of Ruth is the Redeemer showering the needy with his grace. Boaz has the right, he has the resources, and he has the resolve. So chapter 4, verse 13 tells us, Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went in to her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. And the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. There it is again, redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who saw this coming, listen to this phrase, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. You know what Obed means? Obed means worship. So here's Naomi, once a bitter woman, now sitting blessed with a grandson in her lap whose name means worship. And you think that's where the story would end. I mean, that's a pretty good ending. You can almost picture the screen going dark as you're watching this movie unfold. But then... The book, of movie is like, the book of Ruth is one of the, it's like one of those movies where the story's over and you think it's over and you start to get up and start to leave, but then all of a sudden the screen lights back up with a postscript that tells you what happened in the days to come. And 
What happens after Obed's name is the postscript of all postscripts. They named him Obed, and the writer tells us he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And Jewish men and women who heard this story, that postscript was nothing short of jaw-dropping. God just used a Moabite woman and an otherwise hopeless Israelite family to bring about the most famous king of Old Testament Israel. Then the book ends with a genealogy, which we think kind of boring parts of the Bible. There's symbolism here. There's 10 generations of this genealogy. Symbolic when you think about 10 years of death and barrenness in Moab. When you think about God's curse among people of Moab down to the 10th generation, The book ends with 10 generations from Perez all the way to King David. And then the beauty is the story doesn't even end there. So go with me real quickly to the first verses, words of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1. Turn with me just real quick to Matthew chapter 1 because this is where we begin to realize that this is not just a story of love and redemption at a point in Israel's history and the Old Testament. This is a story within a story. The book of Ruth is a good story that points to a much grander story. For listen to how the pages of the New Testament begin, begin the introduction to Jesus, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of David, the son of Abraham. Then he gives all these names. You get down to verse five and you see Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab and Boaz, the father of Obed by who? By Ruth, circular name there. Obed, the father of Jesse and Jesse, the father of David, the king. Exactly what we read about. And then you get down to verse 16 and you see Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, the savior was born, who is called the Christ, the Messiah. Which all begs the question, what in the world is a Moabite woman doing in the line that leads to the Son of God? Why does the New Testament open with her name amidst all these other names? Why is she included in this family line? And the answer is the same exact reason why any one of our names might be included from this family line. Not because We deserve to be there, have earned our way there, but because of the mysterious mercy of God. No, brothers and sisters in Christ, don't miss this. This story in the Old Testament, we are Ruth. We are Ruth. We are the needy, wandering, working in field with nothing in us to draw the Lord of the harvest to us. In fact, all the factors against us, Outcasts, outsiders, sinners desperately in need of favor. And the good news of the gospel is there is a redeemer who has sought us as his family, who has come to us and pursued us as sons and daughters, who's crossed all kinds of lines and made a beeline. Ephesians 1 says, before the foundation of the world, God set his sight on your soul. He purposed to redeem you through the blood of Christ. He sought us as his family. He has saved us from harm. He's drawn us to himself. He's nestled you and me under the shadow of his wings such that even when the storm rages around us and difficulties befall us, God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. 
He has served us at his table. Brothers and sisters, the Lord of the harvest has invited you to his table. He's seated you there, not only seated you there, but served you there. He stooped to shock you with his love. He's spoken to your heart and he's satisfied your soul in a way that he has said, you have no need to go to any other fields. You will experience all the satisfaction you need in my field. And he has showered us with his grace. Jesus is our redeemer. Does he have the right to redeem us? Absolutely. He's a near kinsman like us in every way. Fully man, fully God, yet without sin. Does he have the resources to redeem us? Absolutely. He is the son of the living God with all authority over death, sin, suffering, and the grave. He came telling the waves to be still, telling the sick to be healed, telling the blind to see and the lame to walk, demons to flee, and the dead to rise. Without question, he has the resources to redeem. Does he have the resolve? Praise God. Jesus has the resolve to redeem. He did not take up a cross because he had to, but because he desired obedience to his Father and the salvation of our souls. And he has gone and paid the price. He has endured the wrath that you and I are due. He has taken the punishment of our sin upon himself so that we might be redeemed. No, non-Christian friend, I am totally convinced that God, a sovereign God, has brought you to this place, this room, this night to hear this good news. He loves you. And he does not want to leave you in your sin. He wants to save you from your sin in all of its payment, and all of its punishment. He loves you so much. He has sent his son to pay the price for sin. And so I invite you. I invite you to receive his love tonight, to do what one new brother in Christ did this morning, who walked away from here, went to Starbucks with a friend of his and came back. And he was in the nine o'clock, came back at 11 and said, I'm trusting Christ for the first time today. So... Would you, would, you, would you trust the love of God for you? Would you trust what Jesus has done as your Redeemer to reconcile you to himself and to change your life and your future forever? And then, Christian brother or sister, know this. Know this no matter what happens in your life. No matter what has happened or will happen in your life, you have a Redeemer who loves you who shelters you under the shadow of his wings. And he is committed to satisfying you in his field, at his table, behind a frowning providence. There is indeed a smiling face. These clouds that you so much dread are big with mercy and they will break in blessings on your head. And those blessings, they may not be evident today, and they may, may not be evident tomorrow, but there is coming a day when all the trials and all the trouble and all the pain and all the hurt and all the tears and all the grief will be no more. The old will be gone, the new will have come. Brother, sister in Christ, look forward, look forward to the massive postscript that will appear on the screen of heaven as all the stories are told of the ways God used perplexing pain and mysterious 
means to prove his matchless mercy on behalf of the people he loves. This is the hope under which we hold. This is the hope in which we rest. This is the hope that is symbolized in what we're about to do. Jesus has redeemed us. He's conquered sin and death and the grave. He has said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will never, even though he dies, he will live. And if that's the case, then you and I have nothing to fear. Nothing to fear in any storm clouds in this life.
Heart and Soul Ministries is now starting a new Japanese program and is able to spread the gospel in Japanese. If you know anyone that is fluent in Japanese, please let them know of this program. We hope that they will be able to hear the gospel of Jesus through our CDs. If you are interested, please contact us at our office. Our office number is 602-866-8999 and our email address is heartandsoul.org at gmail.com. Thank you. Following is a program called If Anyone Wishes to Come After Me. Hello, listeners. This is Brian Winston, your host of the program If Anyone Wishes to Come After Me. During our last lesson, we learn that when we decide to follow Jesus, we decide to receive the hardships and persecution that comes along with following Him. But all the hardships and persecution cannot hinder our salvation and through it, God still holds on to us. We also learned last time that we should not be afraid of those who can only harm and kill our bodies, but not our spirit. Today we will be discussing the required conditions that come with the decision to follow Jesus. Jesus chose 12 disciples, but his calling to them did not finish there. Jesus wanted other people to follow him and become his disciples as well. Let us begin by reading Mark chapter 8 verses 34 through 38 as we discuss this. First, let's just read verse 34. And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus tells this to his disciples in the crowd. He says, If anyone wishes to come after me, and continues to explain the requirements that we must abide by to follow Jesus. The words come after me, when translated into Greek, does not mean just to follow once or to follow for a short period of time, but it means to follow constantly and repeatedly. If we translate it into more depth, the literal translation would be, if anyone wishes to come after me, together to the place I'm going. Jesus did not talk about following him temporarily, but he spoke of following him to the end. What does Jesus say about what is required of the one who follows him to the end? First, he must deny himself. Second, he must take up his cross. Both of these things must happen prior to following Jesus. What does it mean to deny yourself and to take up your cross? Let us first think about what it means to deny oneself. To deny means that one refuses to admit the truth or existence of something. Therefore, to deny yourself would mean to refuse to admit the existence of your opinions. This means that you must think of yourself as a person you do not know, and to put it plainly, it means we must let go of all of our right to make decisions. Peter denied Jesus three times on the night Jesus was captured. 
He said that he did not know Jesus. This is what it means to deny. It means to say, I do not know. It has nothing to do with me. To deny yourself is to deny everything that is inside of you and say it has nothing to do with me. Only then you can say that I have nothing to do with myself and I will only follow Jesus and make decisions with the help of the Holy Spirit. This is in reality very hard to achieve. It is something that our Christian brothers and sisters fight with all of the time. But we can't refuse to fight this battle because it's hard. This is a battle that we must fight because Jesus teaches us to. We confess that we love Jesus. There are many people that confess this love for Jesus that do not love him enough to deny themselves. To follow Jesus, we must love Jesus more than ourselves. This is the first requirement. Jesus shows us an example of this. When Jesus is at Gethsemane, he says to God, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but your will be done. Jesus denied himself. To deny yourself is to obey God's words. What does it mean to take up the cross? People often believe that the cross is a burden that they have to carry in their lives. For example, they relate their wives, husbands, children, work, and health as their cross and tell themselves that they live by enduring and losing to the cross. This way of thinking only arises due to the fact that one does not know the full meaning of what the cross is. The cross was used in Rome as a tool to execute the slaves and foreigners. Those who were Roman citizens were excluded from execution by the cross. This is because they believed that death on the cross was a very humiliating way to die and was not something that Roman citizens should go through. Those who were executed on the cross had to carry either the whole cross or part of the cross to the place of execution. Also, the execution was held in a place that all the people were able to go and see easily. This was so that many people would see the execution and be afraid to commit the same crime. People sneer and mock the people as they carry their own cross to the execution site. The person who is being executed must take all the mockery and sneers and take their cross to the place they will die. Jesus tells us exactly that we must take up our cross. He does not mean that if we want to follow him, we should be denying ourselves and preparing to die. He is explaining to us that the road to following him will be met with sneers and mockery. Jesus is saying that everyone who sees us should believe that we are living a life of death. When you deny yourself and take up your cross, there is no one else to follow but Jesus. You cannot follow anyone else. A person that goes through all of this can only follow Jesus Christ. What will happen if you decide not to do this because it will be hard, a burden, or an inconvenience? We find the answer through Jesus' words. Let's read Mark chapter 8, verses 35-38. to 38. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, 
the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. A person will lose his life if he does not deny himself and take up his cross, and he will be ashamed when Jesus comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Let's take another look at Jesus' words. In verse 38, who does Jesus say is ashamed of Jesus and his words? It is this adulterous and sinful generation. Now take a look back at your life. We are now living in this adulterous and sinful generation. We are now living in a more adulterous and sinful generation than ever before. People are starting to resent calling themselves Christians. Many people are leaving the church. Many people are ashamed to be spreading Jesus' words and ashamed to be followers of Jesus. This is because the world will always sneer and mock the people that believe in Jesus. Are you ashamed of the name Jesus Christ as you live in this adulterous and sinful world? Are you ashamed of Jesus' words and living by them? A person who denies himself does not reveal himself. He does not go around asking people to know him. He does not do things on his own will and make his own decisions. He does not try to fulfill his own dream. A person who takes up his cross does not get hurt from the people that sneer and mock at him. This is because he already decided to die. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. This is because he cannot save his own life. His life is held by God. This is why he who denies his life for Jesus in the gospel will receive salvation. Please think hard about what Jesus is telling us. If you gain everything from the world and still lose your life, was it worth it? Where will you use all that you gain from the world? What will you trade for your life? There is nothing else that you must follow other than Jesus Christ in his words. There is no hope in anything else. Being a Christian does not mean to attend church. It means that the old person dies and a new person is born. You must deny yourself and carry your cross and follow the same path of Jesus. Can you call yourself a Christian? Thank you for listening. And I hope you join us again next time as we continue our series of If Anyone Wishes to Come After Me. I'm so thirsty I can feel it Burning through the furthest corners of my soul Deep desire I can't describe this Nameless urge that drives me somewhere Though I don't know where to go Seems I've heard about a river From someone who's been Tell me once you reach it Or you'll never thirst again So I have to find the river Somehow my life depends on the river Holy river
loudest river And I kneel and beg for mercy from the skies And no one answers I've gotta take my chances Cause something deep inside me is crying This is why you are alive So I plunge into the river What is the gospel, the good news? It is the ability for us to say that we are forgiven for all our sins and are now able to live an eternal life. If this good news does not touch our hearts, then this good news will not be good news to our lives. What will heaven be like? Well, I can't tell you for sure because I haven't been there. But Revelation chapter 21 verse 4 tells us, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. If you read these words carefully, you can see that it contains all the happiness that we hope for and work hard for in this life. There will be no days of crying. There will be no more mourning, no more sadness, and definitely no more sickness. There will be no more death, and there will be no more sin that has bothered us so much in this life. There will be nothing to make us unhappy. There will be nothing for us to worry or be concerned about. We will be living in eternity with God and Jesus Christ, living a happy eternal life in a relationship with Him that does not end. We give all that we have to live a happy life in our short life on this earth. We should not be investing in the short happiness on this world. We should be investing everything in our happiness in heaven. I think that the reason that we live in this world is to get ourselves ready for our lives in heaven. Isn't this gospel the good news to all of you? Jesus Christ came into this world to lead us to heaven. 
He gave all of us eternal life. Jesus' resurrection shows us that we will one day be resurrected as well. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. This ends our Unity in Christ program for today. I hope to see all of you again next week. Have a wonderful week and God bless. i